Tomorrow the church will canonise a man whose life and work has been described by Pope Benedict XVI as one great commentary on the question of conscience, who was praised by St John Paul II for his deep intellectual honesty and fidelity to conscience and grace, and who is celebrated by many as one worthy of the title Doctor of the Church and specifically Doctor of Conscience. That such a high authority on conscience is being celebrated in this way could not be more timely. For rights of conscience are regularly flouted today all around the world, and the very idea of conscience much contested. Some treat it as mere sincerity or subjective intuition. Others as personal rivalry with authority. Others again dismiss it altogether. Oxford Don Julian Savalescu sounds like Newman's 19th century critics as he writes of appeals to conscience as idiosyncratic, bigoted, and discriminatory. Behind disputes over whether religious or moral believers engage in healthcare or other pursuits should have the space to pursue their conscientious beliefs and even have conscience protections is the deeper question of the meaning, basis and scope of conscience. And there's no one better to explore this with than our almost saint. Which brings me to part two of six parts for those who'd like to count down. <laughs> In fact, you've got five parts left. That's just enough for one mystery of today's rosary each. <laughs> Two, conscience in Newman's day. Newman was heir to a long and rich tradition of conscience going back to Paul, Augustine, Aquinas and Thomas More, amongst others. Joseph Butler mediated much of that tradition to Newman's generation. He described conscience as moral reason, moral sense or divine reason, a sentiment of the understanding or a perception of the heart by which an agent reflects on action, prospectively or retrospectively, applying moral principles available to all. Butler reflected the turn away from metaphysical to more psychological explanations of ethics. That was all the rage in that age. In Newman's own century, new views of conscience were emerging. For nonconformists, conscience was freedom of religion along with moral constraints on anything that made you smile. For the Kantians, it was a stern-faced practical reason holding duty up before the agent for his or her acquittal or condemnation. For the Liberals, it was about doing it my way, constrained only by law and education. For the Darwinists, an evolved mechanism for managing conflicts 
between competing natural impulses or competing species. And for the Marxists and Nietzscheans, a social policeman, the construct of a controlling community. It is against such a background that Newman sought to teach his version of the tradition on conscience. His most famous treatment of conscience was in his letter to the Duke of Norfolk. But we find thoughts in his sermons, treatises, hymns, even novels. Conscience rates are mentioned 588 times in his letters and diaries alone. But as with Thomas More, we see in Newman someone not just speculating about moral theory, but often personally agonising over what. Newman gave his witness to Catholic conscience in an environment in which it was not always well respected. Pope Emeritus Benedict attributes Newman's youthful conversion from rationalism to Christianity to the discovery of the objective truth of personal and living God who speaks to the conscience and reveals to man his condition as a creature. This first conversion and the subsequent two, to high churchman and then to Catholic, were not well received by all. Yet from the Calvinist Thomas Scott, he learned his determination to adhere to the interior master with his own conscience, confidently abandoning himself to the Father and living in faithfulness to the recognised truth. Though he was subjected to many trials, disappointments and misunderstandings, he never descended to false compromises, the Pope observed. He always remained honest in his search for the truth, faithful to the promptings of his conscience and focused on the ideal of sanctity. Well, after poping in 1845, Newman's honesty was impeached by the Reverend Charles Kingsley. This provoked his famous Apologia Pro Vita Sua, a spiritual autobiography that detailed his tussles of conscience and responds to the accusations of bad faith. A few years later, Newman spoke out against I'm ashamed to say, a former Dominican friar and graduate of this university, Jacinto Achille, who was an anti-Catholic demagogue and serial rapist. Newman was tried and convicted for criminal libel, despite overwhelming from Achilles' victims. He escaped imprisonment and his fine and court costs, the equivalent of more than 1.5 million pounds in today's terms, were paid by admirers from all over the world, including, I'm pleased to say, Australia. 
But first, he received a humiliating tongue lashing from the judge about his moral deterioration since becoming a Catholic. Another occasion on which Newman gave witness to conscience was in 1874, when former Prime Minister William Gladstone published a pamphlet declaring that the English Catholic was required by the Vatican Council to forfeit his moral and mental freedom and to place his loyalty and civil duty at the mercy of another. It fell to Newman to defend Catholics against these charges of disloyalty to the nation and subjection to papal tyranny to the Duke of Norfolk. Which brings me to number three, Newman on the voice of conscience. Writing on the occasion of the first centenary of Newman's death, John Paul II observed that Newman's conscience, like his teaching in general, is subtle and whole and ought not to be oversimplified in its presentation. Well, sadly, the time allowed today requires considerable. Newman insists that conscience is not simply the English sense of propriety, self-respect or good taste, formed by general culture, education and social custom. Rather, he says, it's the echo of God's voice within the heart of man, the pulse of the divine law beating within each person as a standard of right and wrong with an unquestionable authority. This voice of God in the nature and heart of man, as distinct from the voice of revelation, is what tradition calls the natural law. Conscience applies that law in judgment that bears immediately on conduct, on something to be done or not done. Newman begins his account here. But such obedience to natural conscience can be a prelude to obedience to divine revelation. Thus, in his novel, Callista, the saint says, I feel that God within my heart. I feel myself in his presence. He says to me, do this, don't do that. You may tell me that this dictate is a mere law of my nature, as it is to joy or to grieve. I cannot understand this. No, it is the echo of a person speaking to me. It carries with it proof of its divine origin. My nature feels towards it as towards a person. When I obey it, I feel a satisfaction. When I disobey, a soreness. Just like that I feel in pleasing or offending some revered friend. An echo implies a voice. A voice, a speaker. That speaker I love and I fear. In his letter to the Duke of Norfolk, Newman explains whose voice that is. Conscience is not 
a long-sighted selfishness, he says, nor a desire to be consistent with oneself. But it is a messenger from him who, both in nature and grace, speaks to us behind a veil and teaches and rules us by his representatives. Conscience is the Aboriginal vicar of Christ. Now, he didn't say Australian Aboriginal vicar of Christ, just Aboriginal vicar of Christ. Yet talk of inner lights and strange voices has a decidedly Gnostic, even psychotic, feel to it. If we hear voices no one else can hear, we should probably see a doctor or an exorcist. And were conscience really a voice from outside our reasoning, it would play no part in moral philosophy and might suggest a double truth in moral theology. My merely human practical reasoning tells me to do X, but my divine inner voice tells me to do Y, not X. So does Newman think conscience is like an inbuilt satnav, or like the angel who appears on Fred Flintstone's right shoulder, whispering into his right ear about his duty, in contradiction to the bad angel whispering temptations into his left, which he must decide whether to obey. Several things might be said about this. First, conscience is for Newman a constituent element of the mind, like perception, reasoning, and aesthetic judgment. And its primary function is the rational judgment of the moral sense that interprets human nature. It is the subjective experience of the objective moral law at play in the actor's life. Its reliable use requires moral education and practice. Here Newman is following the classical notion of synderesis and conscientia, mediating a divine law even to unbelievers. The use of the metaphor of voice, then, is to emphasise that conscience does not invent its own principles, but receives and recognises them. Secondly, it's this quality of conscience as the rule of ethical truth, the standard of right and wrong, a sovereign, irreversible, absolute authority in the presence of men and angels. It gives its authority both with respect to the agent, who might otherwise choose a more convenient course, and with respect to the community in the state, which should respect the individual not merely as a voter, but as a voice of God. We are accustomed to speaking of conscience as a voice, Newman explains in the Grammar of Ascent, because it is so imperative and so constraining. Like no other dictate in the whole of our experience, conscience must be obeyed. 
He who acts against his conscience loses his soul, Newman concludes. The metaphor of voice, then, as he puts it in the development of doctrine, serves to emphasise the directing power of conscience. Thus, as Pope Benedict has observed, conscience for Newman is both capacity for truth and obedience to that truth, both moral sense and moral judgment. Thirdly, natural conscience serves to plant seeds of faith and morals in the human soul so that people are already ordered or prepared to receive the gospel. It is by the universal sense of right and wrong, Newman says, the consciousness of transgression, the pangs of guilt, and the dread of retribution, as first principles deeply lodged in the hearts of men. It is thus and only thus that he has gained his footing in the world and achieved his success. Fourthly, once a person has the gift of Christian faith, Newman implies that this natural voice is transformed into the Christian sense of responsibility before God. In the Apologia, Newman says believers would rather follow and if need be be wrong with their religious conscience than follow and be right with their reason alone. Conscience then is now recognised as the voice of a God who is known and loved and whose instructions have even more imperative force than they did before faith. Left to itself and disregarded, it can become a counterfeit of the sacred power it is, he says, and turn into a kind of self-confidence and deference to a person's own subjective judgment. Newman's words are unequivocal and perennially valid. Conscience has its rights because it has its duties. Duties to self, to one's fellows, above all, to God. Thus, Reinhard Hutter argues that Newman's understanding of conscience is essentially theonomic. Fifthly, in response to liberal tendencies of his day, Newman insisted that Christians must form their consciences in accord with the scriptures, tradition and magisterium. The sense of right and wrong is so delicate, so fitful, puzzled, obscured, perverted, so subtle in its argumentative methods, so impressible by education, so biased by pride and passion, so unsteady in its course, he says, that in the struggle for existence amid the various exercises and triumphs of the human intellect, this sense is at once the highest of all teachers, yet the least luminous. And the church, the pope, the hierarchy are in the divine purpose the supply of an urgent demand. Ecclesiastical authority on this account 
is not some external force commanding us to act against our best judgment, but rather a divinely ordained assistance for rooting out errors in our moral reasoning which the faithful willingly appropriate. Famous for agreeing to toast the Pope, but only after toasting conscience first, Newman did not overstate the roles either of the magisterium or of personal conscience, but demonstrated their service to each other and the role of each in articulating God's purposes. Sixthly, if the light of reason and or of revelation is properly given to the intellect, conscience is then a property or function of the intellect. Yet in many places, human, in human, conscience seems to be a quality of the will as much as of the intellect. Reverence and obedience make for sound conscience. Self-sufficiency, I loved to choose. Rebelliousness, pride ruled my will. And sensuality, I loved the garish day. On the other hand, distort judgment and action. The sound action of conscience thus requires a conversion or purification, not just of intellect but also of will. A putting on the mind and heart of Christ to follow Paul's language. A trusting in the lead of that kindly light, not merely the consistent application of self-evident or should be evident principles. And without subjecting ourselves to the church, which is the undaunted and only defender of truth, he says, conscience easily fades. That's in the idea of the universe. Four, Newman on conscience in the contemporary magisterium. It's here at the intersection of the sovereignty of conscience and the fragility of conscience without guidance that we find Newman's answer to the questions of relativism and truth, which so often cloud discussion around his thinking. In his tussle with Gladstone, Newman insisted that the Pope's authority rests precisely on the authority of conscience. For his magisterium is there to serve the consciences of the faithful by forming and informing them. And so can never contradict conscience without cutting the ground from under his feet. What's more, he pointed out, the teaching of popes is mostly general and the judgments of conscience particular. So it's hard to see how they could conflict. The idea of making Newman a bishop had been abandoned long before the First Vatican Council. And he was unwilling to attend as a paritas. He was very present, though, at the Second Vatican Council, held long after his death. That council readily adopted his language, language of the voice, echo, messenger, or sanctuary of conscience. In Gaudium et Spes, the council fathers said, in the depths of his conscience, man detects a law which he does not impose upon himself, 
but which holds him to obedience, always summoning him to love good and avoid evil, the voice of conscience, when necessary, speaks to his heart. Do this, shun that. For man has in his heart a law written by God. To obey it is his very dignity. According to it, he will be judged. Conscience is the most secret core and sanctuary of a man. There he is alone with God, whose voice echoes in his depths. Conscience featured 52 times in the documents of the Second Vatican Council. I need not rehearse that teaching here today. Suffice it to say that it was very much in the tradition of Paul, Augustine, Aquinas, Moore, and Newman. St. Paul VI attributed to Newman's wisdom much of the Council's thinking in this area. Subsequent popes have regularly praised Newman's contribution on conscience and drawn from it themselves. He's quoted directly in the Catechism of the Catholic Church and in Veritatis Splendor in the Treatments of Conscience. Five, Newman on conscience in contemporary society. If Newman's influence on the church's understanding of conscience is clear, has he also affected civil understandings? Well, several authors, Mr. Weigel, have recently explored how Newman's writings on conscience influence the thinking and action of Sophie Scholl, leader of the White Rose resistance movement under Nazism. In 1942, she gave two volumes of Newman's sermons as a parting gift to her boyfriend, Fritz Hartnagel, when he was sent to the Eastern Front. From the horrors of the battlefield, Fritz wrote to Scholl that Newman's writings were like drops of precious wine. Many others were also influenced by Newman's teachings on conscience and took heroic stances for the truth at risk to their safety and comfort. Yet conscience today is often asserted in defence of following personal inclinations according to a subjectivist or relativist ethic. Servais Theodore Penkus noted that in Catholic circles, a certain allergic aversion to law has shifted the centre of gravity in moral theology away from law and toward personal conscience, from the individual to the individual subject and conscience. Follow your conscience has come to be code for pursuing personal preferences, especially in sexuality, bioethics, free marriage and church practice. The language of the primacy of conscience unknown to the tradition from Paul to Newman, more often implies contest with Catholic teaching than with the spirit of the age or culture. This is not the Christian conception of conscience at all. As Ratzinger observed, it is rather a cloak thrown over human subjectivity, allowing man to elude the clutches of reality. 
Newman was alert to this tendency already in his day. In this century, he said, conscience has been superseded by a counterfeit, which the 18 centuries prior to it never heard of and could not have mistaken for it if they had. It is the right of self-will, an Englishman's prerogative to be his own master in all things. Revelation, tradition, community, even reason itself were increasingly seen as adversaries of the free agent. Instead of being informed by right reason and church teaching, appeals to conscience were increasingly about personal preference. He argued prophetically that conscience is only worthy of our respect because it is about hearing the truth and obeying God. But left to itself, he says, though it tells truly at first, it soon becomes wavering, ambiguous. It needs good teachers and good examples to keep it up to the mark. In critiquing misconceptions of conscience, Newman argued that just as the value of memory is in remembering accurately, so the value of conscience is in yielding right judgment and godly action. Truth always had primacy for him. The Second Vatican followed Newman's lead in celebrating the dignity of conscience but also habitually qualified the word with adjectives such as right conscience, correct conscience, well-formed conscience, upright conscience, or Christian conscience. Allowing that not a few consciences are confused, deformed, secularized, or otherwise misleading. Conscience often goes astray sometimes invincibly, that is, by no fault of the agent, and so without losing its dignity, but at other times voluntarily, that is, because of the negligence of the agent or vice, in which case conscience is degraded. In response to the view that Catholic conscience might come to conclusions at odds with the magisterium, he said, the church, the pope, the hierarchy are in the divine purpose the supply of an urgent demand. Natural religion needs, in order that it may speak to mankind with effect and subdue the world, to be sustained and completed by revelation. Thus on the eve of Newman's beatification, Pope Benedict noted, at the end of his life, Newman would describe his life's work as a struggle against the growing tendency to view religion as a purely private and subjective matter, a question of personal opinion. Here is the first lesson we can learn from his life. In our day, when an intellectual and moral relativism threatens to sap the very foundations of our society, Newman reminds us 
that as men and women made in the image and likeness of God, we were created to know the truth, to find in that truth our ultimate freedom and deepest fulfilment. Which brings me at last to six, Doctor of Conscience. My, my talk has barely scratched the surface of Newman's rich teaching on conscience as the voice of God. Much is made of his insistence that conscience be respected and followed above all else. Yet the authority of conscience lies in pointing us to moral and religious truth, prompting us to follow the divine will. Far from being a cause or excuse for relativism, then conscience is its ultimate rejection. But because conscience is also relativism's most vulnerable target, Newman insists on the church's role as conscience's defender and formator. This brought a young Peritus at the Second Vatican Council named Father Ratzinger to see that without church authority, conscience is the ready slave of personal passion and social fashion what he would famously dub the dictatorship of relativism. On the centenary of the saint's death, the now grown up Cardinal Ratzinger paid tribute to Newman's liberating and essential truth that the we of the church develops from and guarantees the me of personal conscience. For conscience, on Newman's account is above all about discipleship, the implicit discipleship of those who hear and respond to God unknowing as they follow their best reason in their choices, and the explicit discipleship of the faithful who know that conscience guided by the gospel and the church is our surest guide. St. John Henry Newman, Doctor of Conscience, pray for us. Thank you, Archbishop, for those beautiful reflections. I speak today not as a, an expert on Newman, but as a student of the great saint's teachings on conscience, and I'm going to pick up in a sense where Archbishop Fisher left off. Newman's teachings provide a proper understanding the freedom of conscience and the church's duty to defend the truth publicly. In both these ways, Newman prefigured the church's declaration on religious freedom, Dignitatis Humanae, which was promulgated in 1965, that is 75 years after Newman's death. Together, Dignitatis and Newman can help us resist the erroneous notion of the free conscience pointed inward to self and isolated from God and nature, rather than outward to God, who, more than anything uh, and anyone else, is the true guarantor of freedom. Since Newman's time, this era has damaged free societies and entered the church itself. Following Newman and Dignitatis will permit us to defend true freedom of conscience, both within the church and for everyone 
everywhere. Conscience, says Newman, is the voice of God. Conscience, he writes, is a messenger from him who both in nature and in grace speaks to us behind a veil and rules us by his representatives, that is, the magisterium, the fundamental teachings of the church on faith and morals as the path to freedom and happiness in this life and in the next. For its part, Dignitatis Humanae declares the right of every person to religious freedom, defined as an immunity from coercion in matters of conscience by any human agent, including the state and the church. God calls men to serve him in spirit and truth, says Dignitatis. Hence, they are bound in conscience, but they stand under no compulsion. God has regard for the dignity of the human person whom he himself created, and man is to be guided by his own judgment, and he is to enjoy freedom. Dignitatis is here affirming the ancient teaching of the church that a man must obey, his, that a man must obey God, but that he must also follow his conscience, even if it errs. Newman puts it this way. If a man is culpable of being in error, which he might have escaped had he been more in earnest, for that error he is answerable to God. But still he must act according to the error, because he in full sincerity thinks the error to be true. Note the dilemma. You and I must act in accord with our consciences. God has given us that freedom, and no one can licitly employ coercion to restrict it. But we are also bound in conscience to obey God. An erring conscience that results from our failure to ensure it is ordered to the truth leads to moral culpability. Willful pursuit of the wrong could lead one into grave sin. A man could, in other words, follow an ill-formed conscience straight into hell. In short, our freedom does not give us a moral right to do what is wrong. To the contrary, it increases the importance of ordering our judgments of conscience to the truth. Dignitatis puts it this way. Religious freedom has to do with immunity from coercion in civil society. Therefore, it leaves untouched traditional Catholic doctrine on the moral duty of men and societies toward the true religion and toward the one church of Christ." Unquote. This is why the church must have the liberty and must perform the duty of teaching the truth about freedom and justice within civil society. Newman's explanation of conscience and freedom drives this point home. He rejected the false and dangerous view of conscience emerging in the 19th century. In this age, he wrote, the very right and freedom of conscience is seen as the right to dispense with conscience, to ignore a lawgiver and judge, to be independent of unseen obligations. Conscience is a but in this century, it's been superseded by a counterfeit, that is, the right of self-will. Conscience he famously wrote, has rights, that is to say freedom, because it has duties. Those duties consist in the individual's vigilance in ordering conscience to the truths given by God to the church, 
and the church's clarity and persistence in teaching those truths publicly. Newman was in this, as in so much else, prophetic. In the 130 years since his death, few concepts have been more misunderstood and distorted by conscience, or I should, I should say, than conscience. Certainly, more dis nothing more distorted than notions of freedom of conscience. The danger today is greater than when the great saint wrote. He blamed the error on science and philosophy, but insisted that in his day, most Protestants and Catholics still believed that conscience was, and I quote, the voice of God in, the nature, in nature and the heart of man, the internal witness of both the existence and the law of God. That is no longer the case. The distorted view of conscience described by Newman as oriented to self and not to God has penetrated Western culture and religion. For many, the obligation to follow one's conscience has been embraced, but fidelity to truth has been set aside. This untethered and counterfeit freedom of conscience has led to a widespread subjectivism that Newman saw emerging within modern European society, even in his own day. In the years since, however, this counterfeit view of conscience has contributed to a growing disbelief in God and the radical assertion of human autonomy from nature and physical reality. The West is characterized by ever-deepening norms, a cultural and political chasms between those who believe that ethical norms are grounded in nature and nature's God, and those who believe that freedom itself establishes the norms of social ethics. This counterfeit view has encouraged, within the church and without, deep confusion regarding the nature of man and woman as created by God. The beautiful truths about marriage, the family, human sexuality, true joy and true happiness, and the necessity of religious freedom for all persons and all societies. It's for this reason that Dignitatis demands not only an immunity from coercion, but also libertas ecclesiae, the church's right, protected in law and culture, to make public its claims about true freedom, justice, and the power of God's love. Newman exhorts the church to justify this right by performing its duty, that is, professing again and again the profound connection between the individual conscience and the church's public witness to the truth about nature and about Jesus Christ. The errors of our age, far more pervasive than the age of Newman, today place a greater responsibility on the faithful, clergy and lay, to teach and to witness these truths. We desperately need the clarity and winsomeness of truth itself, which is a man, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. Let us, with the great Saint John Henry Newman at our side, embrace and defend these truths anew with hope, joy, courage, and true freedom of conscience. Thank you.